I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I am delighted to say that I am joined from, from the other side of the Atlantic, a uh, great friend of this show and a uh, long-standing acquaintance of mine, the great Greg Proops. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good, Mark Kermode. It's so nice to be back. Uh, I, uh, I've been reading about what's going on over there, and oh my goodness. Yes, it's very strange. We are speaking on Sunday night. And uh, we learnt yesterday uh, that, you know, the lockdown is coming back. There was going to be an announcement at four, then it was going to be five, then it was six. Then, in fact, it ended up being in the middle of me watching a film. So I came out the other <laughs> end. Discovered. So, yeah, there's, there's a month-long lockdown coming. I think it was predicted for a long time. I think there was, a, you know, a lot of people were calling for it before. And so it's not a terrible surprise. But outside at the moment, there is a kind of quasi-apocalyptic storm raging which is providing a peculiar backdrop to all of this. Tell us how things are for you in America. Firstly, whereabouts in America are you? Uh, I'm in uh, Southern California, as we, as we like to call it uh, on the news here in Los Angeles, the Southland, which makes me laugh. Um, I live in uh, LA and uh, it's, uh, you know, there's people out, um, there's people eating. Uh, you can eat outdoors here. Um, so sometimes it feels like we're in a quasi-apocalyptic world. Half of everything is kind of boarded up and crappy. And then there's all these people going about their business like nothing's wrong. And if you've been to LA, and I, I know you have, because I've, I've I've, we've visited each other here, um, you know that the driving here is uh, like Death Race 2000, right? <laughs> people, really human life is so worthless in Los Angeles. And you would have thought that people became more uh, uh, considerate because we're having an apocalypse, but they're not people. If anything, after the seven months of containment, people are driving even crazier. Like they pull away from the curb without, you know, and they cut in front of you. They turn left across five lanes of traffic. People are losing their, you know, we all kind of losing our minds and there's a marijuana dispensary. Well, there's millions here, but there's one down uh, the end of our street and it's so crowded that they have security guards literally blocks from it to keep people from, uh, uh, urinating in people's lawns and parking in their driveways. So all this is going on. Uh, it's, in other words, it's as crazy as you would think it was. Um, the, on so the other basic, hand, you're basically living in a cheap 1960s Roger Corman movie for real. It's yes. actually happening. Mm. There's elements of Escape from LA, <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah, all the Roger Corman movies predicted were absolutely true. There are actually. Um, people smoking weed on the sidewalk uh, in front of, uh, of uh, 
uh, cupcake places. I mean, it's just, uh, it's great in one way, but it's also insane. You know, uh, I think a lot of people here took it real seriously. And then there's a lot of people for whom this is um, an extended vacation. And then there's, of course, the poor people who can't do anything about it. And uh, that's something I think we have to solve pretty soon. Uh, because uh, if anything's been pointed out by this, um, obviously racial inequality, but just the way that the system is set up is uh, so dastardly. And there really shouldn't be the amount of poor there is in both of our countries. Um, and that I think that this apocalypse has shown that in high relief for everyone. Not to get too gloomy about it, but, you know. So, I, no, I have to ask you, because um, actually, I mean, I think the first time we met... I was in America doing, for people who aren't watching this on the internet, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't gone to the Kermode on Film Patreon page, do, because there's a video of this, and Greg is now sporting what can only be described as a sinister top hat that he is wearing at a jaunty angle that is brilliantly offsetting the Kamala uh, T-shirt and uh, the, it's a leopard skin, leopard skin, leopard print uh, jacket Mark, that you're wearing. you would love this so much. We talked about it on our earlier uh, Apocalypse podcast. Nice. It's from uh, Elvis's store in Memphis, uh, Lasky. Um, it's he, fantastic. He had those Jewish tailors in Memphis who made him uh, the yeah. platinum outfit and the you know the million Elvis fan can't be wrong yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then all of the ones for the road race movies, you know, all the little windbreakers and that. And then the shoes are like you know, there's leopard, there's everything. This is not only tiger; it turns into leopard on the same page, and it's made out of some dastardly polyester. It, so wearing it's like wearing a horse blanket. And um, it's yeah, it looks incredible. Is it is it fantastically comfortable or fantastically uncomfortable? It's it's uncomfortable. And I've worn it on stage a few times um, (laughs) and you sweat like a mule in it. But it's the best. When I bought it, it cost four hundred dollars. I was in Memphis and I called Jennifer and I said, you know, Elvis's haberdashers in the in the lobby of this hotel. (laughs) And um, I sent her a picture, you know, and she's like, oh, no, get it. So I got it, and I wore it in Memphis that night, of course, with boots, you know, and of uh, course, uh, and we and we did uh, so we do song styles in our improv group, and that night because it was Memphis, we did uh, blues, rockabilly, and funk, right? Because Memphis, and uh, then I wore it again for a couple of casino gigs because it's just perfect in a casino, and uh, but yeah, so ever since the containment hit in March, we were only there like in November. Uh, I have worn it all the time when I don't want to put on a suit for a Zoom thing. And everybody's always like delighted by it. And then this hat I stole from a kitty show I was on called True Jackson VP. It was on Nickelodeon like 10 years ago. <laughs> we did a ringmaster episode where I had to be a ringmaster and I just took the hat home. And I've this, never, this is the book. I've honest. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it does the whole thing about it falls down, you punch right? it up. It's that's brilliant. But I've never seen anybody wear a, a top hat at a jaunty angle. Normally you just wear it like a kind of stovepipe thing. You are, you are literally doing it at a very, and it's offset with your fabulous glasses. Of course, as always, you and I have a great rivalry over who has the best glasses. I, I have to tell you in terms of, uh, great rock and roll clothes when I was doing the when, when the Dodge Brothers were recording their album at uh, at Sun Studio in Memphis we went down to Clarksdale and, uh, and and we were we were staying in Clarksdale and there's a there's a store there which you may know called um, uh, a high fashion style for men and boys and it is basically an entire 
tailors just full of you know, rock and roll stage clothing, as far as I can tell. Although there's nothing outside that says rock and roll stage clothing. It says high fashion, you know, I style fashion for men and boys. And the best thing about it, they've got red suits and blue suits and green suits and, and shirts that are colours you couldn't even begin to imagine. And there is not a natural fibre in that entire store. It, honestly, if, if, the play, if the place caught fire, it wouldn't burn, it would melt. And it, I just... <laughs> I had the most brilliant time there because apparently Bob Dylan's bought uh, you know a suit from there and Elvis Costello's bought a suit from there, and and it's just colours that 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 hurt, colours that literally physically cause pain, and it was just, it was wonderful. I was like a kid in a candy store, and it was run by these two old guys who didn't like they had a rock and roll bone in their body, but every single thing they produced was the most rocking piece of clothing you've ever seen, and cheap as nuts. Right. I mean, like just yeah, just really stupidly cheap and it, it was great it's uh, mike our singer bought himself a, a a fire apple red suit that it's you just you walk on stage behind him you don't need to play he could just stand there yeah. in the suit and we'll get a round of applause isn't that great one of the liberating things about the south and people always cast the south in a really weird way especially northerners my mother's from mississippi she's from casilla and um, she lived in like Texas, Arizona, whatnot, a lot of rednecky places. But what people don't realize is the South is our Ireland or whatever. All the authors, actors, musicians, actresses, playwrights, you know, that the South is our literary heritage and cultural heritage. One, two, jazz and rock and roll invented there, right? As well as other places. But the liberating thing is taste isn't a barrier there. So... <laughs> No one goes, don't wear a fire apple red suit to Sunday brunch. In fact, it's encouraged. So what I love about the South as opposed to L.A., L.A. people wear flip-flops and ripped jeans when they're rich. You know, they try to dress like they're not rich. But like you be in Virginia or, or, or Mississippi or Alabama and you go to Sunday lunch and everybody's wearing canary and powder blue and, and, and lilac and green and with hats. You know, it's just – and I've always dressed up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in when you're on stage and you're performing. And usually I dress conservative. Like I'll wear a, a navy blue suit or a black suit with a white shirt. But lately I just don't care. I've turned 61. I don't give a shit. I look – I mean I just want to have fun now, you know. Well, listen, I think that, that, no, but that thing about dress, so I, I always, when I do the TV stuff, I always yeah. wear a suit. And it's a yeah. suit that I've actually, I had tailor-made for me, and it's a rocking suit, and I really like it. And, uh, and it actually fits. I never understood that before. You know, I, I always used to get everything off thing. And then for the first time, I actually, I thought, I'm going to buy a tailor-made suit. And you put it on, you go, wow, it's like it's made for me. Yeah. It's, like, it's, re- it's, re- it's really remarkable. But that thing also about the... South Mike uh, in the band who bought the the, the far up a red suit. His um, mom and dad. He's from Montgomery, Alabama originally, and then they moved to San Diego. And when I went to America, I was doing the Exorcist documentary, and you and I hung out when I was doing that because I remember, I remember one night in the Chateau Marmont. That's right. Um, Speaking of you rock started, and you started doing impressions of the Exorcist, and I was <laughs> grinning so I was laughing so much that my face started to hurt. And I was asking you to stop, and and you weren't. And the more I asked you to stop, the more you didn't. And you were just doing, Dimmy, Dimmy, why you did this to me, Dimmy? And it was, it was, it was both brilliant but painful. Anyway, it was one of those weird things. I was going down. I, I went down to San Diego to interview Mercedes McCain. That's what I remember. You had just come back from that. 
just come back. Yeah, and it yeah. was wonderful. She was brilliant. She was just absolutely amazing because, of course, she famously did the voice of the demon. And on the way back, Mike's parents, who, who are no longer with us, um, very sadly, they didn't know me, but they fr- I was friends of their son. So they said, you must come and visit. Yeah. In England, if you say you must come and visit, you mean don't. That means, right, America, I was going to say, don't it, even think about coming. <laughs> that's right, don't, don't come. But in America, if somebody says you must come and visit, they mean you must come and visit. And uh, Mike's uh, mum used to run a dance school, the Hammond School of Dance. And so Mike basically grew up on the stage. It's the old joke about, you know, you open a fridge, a light goes on, he'll do four minutes. But she was, she was fantastic. She was a, a real sort of southern lady. She was a very short uh, woman, but very, very... His father looked like Johnny Cash. And, uh, and it was just, a, you know, not a big occasion, but they were dressed immaculately. They, everything about them, the, you know, the, the way in which her hair was done and the, everything was just perfect, really perfect, in exactly that way you're talking about. And I remember I said this thing. I'd, I'd gone in, they were just friendly to me and they were lovely and, and just really, really, really lovely people. And then at one point I said, because I was being very English and uptight, and I said, um, excuse me, do you, do you have a bathroom? Which is a kind of rhetorical way of saying, right. where's the loo, right? Yeah. Okay. And Mike's mother leaned over to me and she said, honey, we have three and they're <laughs> all, and they're all indoors. <laughs> <laughs> I Which assume they really, made you a giant lunch. It, oh, it, yeah. I mean, I, I ate like I have never eaten. Yeah. By the yeah. time they had to like literally crane me back into the yeah. car to drive back to LA, which is where I saw you that night. <laughs> and it was, but I was, it was wonderful. That thing about you look, you know, you, you they looked fabulous. Yeah. They looked fabulous the whole time. And I, I, you know, I have a, I have a great admiration for that. Now, let me ask you this. This has been a very strange time. And in a moment, we will talk about the election, which, you know, it's Sunday night now. By the time this goes out, it will be election day. Have you been watching movies in the run? Because my job as a film critic has carried on. And I have discovered that almost everything I'm watching is being watched through the filter of everything that's happening with COVID and lockdown. So, for example, I just watched Train to Busan Peninsula. Okay, it's a zombie plague outbreak movie, but in the middle of a COVID lockdown, suddenly it seems like it was made for the times. What have you been watching recently and has it had the same effect on you? Well, uh, last night we were watching, oh, I'm just blanked on the name of it, Val Luton. uh, uh, Well, I walked with Zombie was on, but the other one, The Seventh Victim, which of course Mm -hmm. that seems completely, it's, you know, paranoid society that kills people if they don't, if they, you know, basically it was like the Republican Party. And uh, then uh, we were watching these, um, TCM here uh, was has been trying to make up for 20 years of not doing it. So they're having women directors featured. And we watched <laughs> Salam, ba- Salam Bombay, which is a yeah. superb movie um, about uh, a, a child who's literally on the streets and thrown out yeah. onto the streets and has to make their own way in Bombay and uh, prostitution and everything. So relevant, right? That the poverty, the way that the power plays out. Then there's this other beautiful film, and I'm not going to remember the name of it. You might remember by the description. It's the story of a bunch of nomads, um, and it's from the little girl's point of view, and they live in Mongolia. Is this um, story of the weeping camel? Oh, I think that. Or might is be. it Cave of the Yellow Dog? It's Cave of the Yellow Dog, and she yeah, finds okay. the dog, and the Brilliant. mother says, "Give the dog back." And it's such a a, a lyrical um, and beautifully metaphorical movie and innocent, but there's that element of danger, you know, where they, they throw in at the end and everything. 
And even in the containment, like you say, suddenly everything's through that lens. They're in the middle of nowhere. And the sky is a character in the movie. The landscape's a character in the movie. There's not a lot of dialogue. Very simple things. Their little Buddha shrine, the children laughing, um, going to get water. And then all of a sudden that ultimate paranoia of like, where Salam Bombay is the absolute opposite. People, there's so many people crammed into one place. And this movie's yeah. a movie where they have to drive for a day to see their grandma or whatever on their ponies. And the safety of that in a plague, but also the danger of being a child alone in this uh, uh, in, infinite landscape. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Can, they were showing. Can, can, Cave of the Yellow Dog is interesting because I remember watching Cave of the Yellow Dog and uh, Story of the Weeping Camel because Story of the Weeping Camel is a documentary. Cave of the Yellow Dog is a dramatized story, but with a kind of documentary format. And it's in one of those two films, I, I think it's Yellow Dog, in which the, 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 the kids are getting slightly restless. And so the mother gives them a bucket of dung to go and play with. Yes. And they take it outside and they start playing. I had young kids and they had like, you know, they had scale trick and they had, you know, things. Go, I, I literally want to go, look, have you seen this movie? There are two kids playing quite happily for like two hours with some dried dung. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you need to be watching. I also recently I watched... Um, the Sofia Coppola on the Rocks film. I, I liked it. Some of the Which critics haven't liked one? it very much. It's the new one with Bill Murray uh, and, and, and Rashid Jones. I thought it was really, really cute. But one of the things I liked about it, I mean, it's about a lot of things, you know, father-daughter relationships and growing old and and the difference between men Isn't and women, the, blah, blah. Is this the rich people who drive around New York movie or whatever? There no. Yes, it is exactly <laughs> the rich people who drive around New York <laughs> yeah. movie, Greg. And what I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it, and this is so peculiar because normally that is exactly the kind of thing that would get under my skin. Right. One well, of the you things are, after I really all, love, Guardian film critic. I am. Observer film critic, <laughs> Greg. Observer, Sundays. Um, one of the things I really liked about it was the freedom of it go, just going to places. It's a film in which people get into a car and they go somewhere and then they get out and then they walk around and then they meet people and then they have drinks and then they do stuff and then they get into a car and they go somewhere else. And under other circumstances, I might have turned my nose up at that. But I was literally watching this like in the same way as when people used to watch James Bond films and just be thrilled by the idea that he got on a plane and went to Rio or he got on a plane and went to... So there was just a film that was people being privileged, but having but going around New York. And I, I, I do think it has affected the way that I watch films. And, what, and weirdly, it's made me uh, more uh, accepting of films because I think if a film gives me a nice day out... I'm, I kind of enjoy it. I've become less angry and much more, much more forgiving of that sort of thing. It's an interesting turn, isn't it? I feel the same way. Uh, although the other night we were watching a John Ford uh, sort of comedy melodrama with Spencer Tracy. They were showing all political films. You know, they showed um, The Candidate and, you know, The Usual Suspects. Uh, yeah. Not The Usual Suspects. I meant in... in yeah, the, yeah. The, literally The Usual Suspects. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they showed a picture uh, from the 50s called um, The Last Hurrah, where uh, he's been the mayor of Boston for like 100 years. And he runs his campaign and, and it shows Spencer Tracy's very uh, interesting character because he rarely plays evil. Like Henry Fonda is never evil. You know, he's evil in like three movies, like Once Upon a Time in the West and stuff. Uh, and they showed Henry Fonda's one, The Best Man, too, which is quite good. And both of these are backstage political movies. And the infighting, the chicanery, the skullduggery, the bribery, the, 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 the blackmailing. And these are movies from the 50s and 60s. Um, 
you know, you're just sitting like this through the whole thing. Like, oh my God, this is exactly how it always was. There's no morality. And people really bring it to see Spencer Tracy schmooze one side. They have a wake for this one cop or this one uh, local that nobody liked. And he brings all the police there and firemen to fill up the place. And they're like, nobody liked this guy. And it's like, he does it as a political meeting. And then they all say hi to the widow and then she votes for him. And he ends up losing it. Jennifer hated it. She thought, <laughs> she goes, it's another movie about a white privileged guy not doing anything for anybody. And we're supposed to feel sorry for him at the end. <laughs> and I was like, I looked at it more like it was showing how corrupt the system is and, yeah. and always was. And John Ford, everybody's always Scottish Irish. The point of John Ford is that America was tamed by people named O'Hara and McCain. <laughs> like, is there a John Ford? You, there's the one. There's the one with Woody Strode where he's uh, the, surge, the soldier who gets court-martialed. Uh, so that he has a black star in. And he often has uh, ethnic characters in the movies. But really, is there a John Ford character who's not named, like, you know, Lucius McBath? All the fun, all the fury of the book come alive. Spencer Tracy in the greatest role of his career. Don't you try to pull that on me? Never before, a motion picture so perceptively directed, so lavishly and powerfully presented, so perfectly cast. You know, when um when the Trump administration began, uh, I remember everyone saying the dead zone suddenly seemed terribly prophetic. Yeah. The, the character that Martin Sheen plays in the dead zone. I His just did, Greg. um I just <laughs> Yeah, of course, yeah. Is it Greg Stilson? Greg Stilson. Greg Stil yeah. yeah, Greg Stilson. And I just did um a talk uh, last night uh in uh, in a local cinema about Saint Maud, which was lovely and I, I really liked that film. And people started talking about Cronenberg and immediately people started talking about the dead zone again and it is very strange because obviously that film was made in a completely different era but there was something weirdly prophetic about the kind of the political chicanery that it set up and then um obviously now there's the new fincher mank about the writing of citizen kane and um i watched citizen kane quite a lot anyway because i do think i think it's really really good and uh, and my son just he's, he's uh, studying film at the moment and he wrote he said citizen kane's really amazingly good it was like yeah, no shit. You know, kind of a reason. It it, yeah. yeah, but it, yes, but what's really interesting about that is that it does still stand up. It is really entertaining. It, are there films that have prepared you for where we are? Because we are in a very strange period at the moment. Are there films that have prepared you, or that you think, okay, I'm, you know, I can. That is some kind of uh, reassurance to me. Well, uh, yeah, like you say, the Dead Zone. I remember reading it too, and if you remember. I don't know if it's in the movie, but in the book, uh, Greg Stilson, before he becomes an autocratic uh, wannabe dictator, tyrant type, um, kicks a dog to death when he's a door-to-door -door salesman. And that, to me, rings a number like, you know, we know for a fact that Trump threw rocks at his next-door neighbor's baby when he was a, a child. Rocks. And had to be stopped from doing it. There's that innate cruelty. And if you remember this in The Dead Zone, he has bikers as his security at his rallies and they thump people. So it's prophetic as can be, you know. Um, I think I like to think about the movies that are beautiful uh, as much as the sinister ones. Citizen Kane has always, 
fantastic. The last time we talked, I remember saying to you, the veneration of rich people is something I've never understood. I've never understood why wealth is makes you wealthy people really do think they're smarter than everyone else. And there's that genius line where Everett Sloan says, any, any, any fool can make money if that's all he sets his mind to do. And I, that's the line that I always remember. And that, that one, and I saw a girl once on the ferry. Uh, that's almost like a Proustian line. Uh, I don't think she saw me at all. And uh, uh, she was wearing white. I don't think a day has gone by that I haven't thought about her. And the, the persistence of that. In the containment, when we all lie alone at night, everything goes through your mind, right? Like all of your past. I, thought, I think of things I haven't thought of in 100 years. Because this is... There's a, the lockdown effect of being alone with your own thoughts, right? We're not socializing. You know, we don't go out every night. Jennifer and I would be traveling the world right now and seeing our friends and having dinner with you in London and going to the show and da-da-da-da. Uh, so I think about, um, the, uh, you know, I, I love old movies, but uh, 70s movies, I feel like growing up when I did, I was 10 to 20 from 1970 to 1980. And I went to the pictures, you know, two, three times a week, a whole decade. And those are the movies, I think, The Godfather, uh, 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 All the President's Men, Three Days of the Condor. Um, it, we were exposed to, Jennifer and I talk about it all the time, um, movies that were supposed to be light entertainment for kids like Cooley High and Saturday Night Fever are dark, horrible, violent, misandric <laughs> indictments of society like we thought of them as like you know Pooley High's a comedy a guy kills himself in it uh, and Saturday Night Fever's got like, Night rape Fever. and assault and, 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 and gang fighting and I mean it's just terrible and these are the movies that were supposed to be like good old entertainment for us and I think that's where I, the cynicism the 70s are like the 40s right everything's just over there's burning trash can um even when you're having fun, there's someone dies of drugs or falls off a bridge or, you know, it's, it's just, oh, I remember going to see Taxi Driver when I was like 14. And you're like, you're not ready for that movie when they're 14. No. Well, of course, over here, we have a very different, I mean, over here, Taxi Driver's X means you have to be 18. I was always very impressed, well, impressed, baffled by the American rating system <gasps> in which the harshest rating was Anyone can see it as long as their parents say so. You're going, I don't, how does this work? Like over here, it, you'd have U, everybody, A, you know, 14, double A, you had to be over 14. X, you had to be over 18. That's how it worked. So yeah. The Exorcist, you had to be over 18. Uh, taxi Driver, you had to be over 18. And then in America, ah, restricted. Who's it restricted to? Nobody, no. as long as you go with your parents. They can, t I saw an interview with a, like eight or nine year old kid who had been taken to see The Exorcist by his parents. Oh, I was just thinking, in what world does this, but that's, that's the American, the, and even now with the NC-17, the American rating system makes no sense well, at uh, all. To, to what you're talking about, my father took me to see so many inappropriate movies. Uh, also all the comedies and Peter Sellers and, you know, like that. But, um, I'll never forget he took me to the Wild Bunch when I was 10. And the Wild Bunch is pretty hard going now. It's real ultra, like ultra violent, like almost a parody of ultra violence. The opening shot where the kids have got scorpions on fire and are poking them with sticks like that are covered with red ants. The big metaphor to open the movie, you know, and the shootout where innocent people get killed. And, and the, there are no good guys. 
It's a Western without bad guys and good guys. Everybody's a bad guy. There's literally not a good person in the movie. Robert Ryan might be closest, but he was in the gang. So <laughs> I remember it's the first movie I saw where a woman got shot. <laughs> she shoots William Holden at the end and he goes, biatch, and shoots her. And I remember being traumatized coming out of that movie and saying to my dad, this isn't a Western. This was just like, you know, Westerns have, you know, James Stewart or, or you know, <laughs> more morality boundaries. And there's no... Okay. But do you, but Greg, do you think it was, was it a good or a bad experience? I mean, I'm, look, I'm quite a prude like I've this. I kind of it. do, I, 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 sure, but I kind of approve of movie, I don't approve of censorship, but I approve of movie ratings. I approve of age ratings. I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I'd been able to see that stuff at the age of 14. Not least because I think I wouldn't, I don't know what I would have made of it. I remember the first X, X-rated film I saw, I was 15 and we sneaked in. It was a big deal. And, uh, you know, and it was a, it felt like a really transgressive thing. But, in a, but if to be allowed to see The Wild Bunch when you're that age, yeah. <laughs> it's just nuts. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And then years later, I was at a, a second run theater, which are all going to close. And uh, I was seeing Mad Max, which is, I, I happen to really like Mad Max. I think it's the best. It's the best of all the Mad Max movies. It's, it, no, wait a minute. The second one. Now, hang on. Which one do you call Mad Max? So over no, no. here in England, the first one we call Mad Max. The second one you call Mad Max 2. You're thinking of what we think of as Mad Max 2. You're thinking of Road Warriors. Yes, uh, that's right. The one. Yeah, uh, exactly. The leaders of the world talked yep. and talked and talked. Alexander, the station mongers, he's an honorable man. There's been too much killing, too much pain. Um we all lost someone we love. Stop it. This is what happened at the Chateau Marmont and my face nearly <laughs> fell off. So don't do it again, all right? The Emperor Humongous. Uh, yeah. I'm talking about Road Warrior. So I was, I'd already seen it once and uh, we decided to get high and go see it at this theater on Polk Street called The Royal that's no longer there. And a woman had brought her kids and one of the kids was, oh, I don't know, three or four. And if you remember the movie, there's a lot, there's violence. I mean, it's a really violent movie. And a woman is uh, assaulted and killed in the first reel of the movie. And even Mad Max, who's burnout, is revolted by what happens. And I remember this kid losing their shit. And I was like, I leaned over and I'm like, don't you think he's a little young <laughs> to be? How do you process that when you're five? Like, <laughs> I just thought, and I thought, well, she had to bring all her kids somewhere and she wanted to see the movie, you know, <laughs> but like, wow, man, how do you explain that one on the way home? Wow. wow. Yeah. So there is that uh, discretion thing. Having said that, I think children are ready for metaphors and violence. Fairy tales are such hard going. Uh, they're always, they're cutting people open and people are popping out alive and, you know, like, I, children understand metaphor and symbolism real well because it's almost a base instinct. Um, there's no kid in the world who doesn't love monsters and stuff like that. The line that I always felt, Mark, that I didn't like and what I've hated, and it was pushed by misogynists, is violence against women as titillation. I've never enjoyed it. I hate that genre. Um, Les Moonves, who is a pervert who used to run CBS uh, here in the United States, he finally lost his job because he was sexually... Uh, harassing and assaulting women. Um, 
put that whole CS, uh, all those TV shows where there was violence against women, and that's the whole point of the show, to be all titillated by it. And that was his genre. He loved that. And he, he knocked down Diane English and all the women writers who created all these great shows and kept denying them shows when they had deals at CBS and pushing those shows forward. And in his real life, he was that person. He was taking his knob out of his doctor. You know, he's that guy. And Mr. Good-looking executive dude. He's the one who said four years ago, Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for business. So that's where he was coming from morally. And I always felt like that's who's behind that genre of stuff. Uh, like Silence of the Lambs, not my favorite because, you know, I understand it's well acted. I love Scott Glenn, you know, I love Jodie Foster. Anthony Hopkins is bloody marvelous in it. So here's a, here's a show business story. Uh, years ago, we went to see uh, Hamlet, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet which if you've ever seen is a, a dead seal. It's a dead seal laying on a beach and, and it never gets up off the beach. <laughs> Having said that. Can I just say, I love Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, but I'm going to let you carry on. Well, you didn't see the play. We were at the play. So oh no, fine. So this was, the, play. okay, no, I saw the, the film. Okay, but. No, the play was unredacted. So, uh, uh, and, no, <laughs> and no one does an uncut Hamlet, right? There's a reason why every version you've ever seen on stage <laughs> is two hours long because it's a three and a half hour play with two intervals. And it goes on and on. And even then, when it came out, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth detested it. There's a bit, it's a bit Age of Enlightenment for an era where people were going to bear baiting and stuff. The Elizabethan area is so violent and so harsh. And all Hamlet does is go, should I? I, might, I maybe I should. Should I? But if I do, am I a bad person? And that's three hours of this until finally he kills the wrong person. You know, it, it's all. So... And also he said it in, um, uh, what was it? It's like uh, turn of the century Norway or whatever. Like, you know, yeah, like, they're wearing like frock coats and, you know, people are walking into scenes with top hats on and stove. And so the least romantic setting for it I've ever, because I've seen a Road Warrior version where they wore like hockey gear. And then Mel Gibson's one where they wear like furs and stuff. You know? <laughs> so the story was this. Uh, I was friendly with uh, uh, Ken and Emma then. And uh, they're very kind to me. Uh, so it's awful of me to say what I said about the play. But go ahead. Uh, so sitting next to us at this play was Anthony Hopkins. And it was the year after he won the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs. So they'll give you an idea what year it was. Jennifer stepped on his foot on the way to her seat and said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he was like, no, it's all right. And he, Anthony Hopkins said, no, that's fine. You know, and so... <laughs> We went backstage after because we knew them then. And, uh, and Brano was hilarious. He's a very funny guy, as you know. He's yeah, really, he is, he is very really, funny. He's much funnier than you think. Like, he's got a great sense of humor. Emma, yeah, because she was at the footlights and all that. But he's funny. And he goes, oh, my favorite show of the week is Sunday because they, they put on a roast in between the matinee and, and, and the evening performance. And I go, what's it like doing this? And he goes, Oh, it's fucking horrible. He goes, you run out of all of your tricks in the first act. So you like you, every acting trick you've ever learned. And then by the fifth act, you're like, I have nothing left. I'd have no more. You know, you've already shown them. You cried. You've laughed. You've gone mad. You've been violent. You, you know, and I, that made me cry laughing. So Anthony Hopkins comes in with his wife into the dressing room. And Kenneth fantastically goes, oh, you know, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hello, Tony. And awesomely, Anthony Hopkins says, um, 
I hope that Emma wins the Oscar for Best Actress because I'll be the one to hand it to her. And he did. She won, <laughs> if you remember. She wore that green dress and he gave her the Oscar. But it was, I, it was such a show business thing. Like, I didn't know who Anthony Hopkins I mean, I know who Anthony Hopkins is, but, but oh, you know Tony. Yeah. Now, Greg, did she win for Best Actress or for Best Screenplay? Oh, Screenplay. You're screenplay. Right. It, was, it was for... Um, for Sense, Sense and Sensibility. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I met yeah, her yeah. on a radio show in San Francisco when she was plugging the book. And the, we had friends in common because my friend Richard Ranch, from Whose Son Is It Anyway, uh, was with Slattery at the Footlights at the very same time as them. So they all went to, you know, posh school together. You see, this is, you see, I, I was kind of, I'm, I'm really impressed. By, firstly, I'm, I'm impressed by everything about you. Um, <laughs> secondly, I'm impressed by the, by the, the, the breadth of uh, stuff that you remember. But thirdly, I'm impressed by the amount of people that you have crossed paths with. Because talking to you is, and I mean this is the highest possible compliment, talking to you is a bit like talking to William Friedkin, who is like yeah. a, I mean, I've often said you should just do a one-man show. You should literally just go on stage and do the stories. I remember Friedkin telling me this story on the subject of Hamlet. He said, oh, you know the thing about the, the, the terrible actor playing Hamlet? And I said, no. He said, yeah, so this guy, and he's awful, and he's doing the thing, and he's, he's doing to be or not to be, and it's awful, it's terrible, and people are booing, and they're throwing stuff, and finally he walks to the front of the stage and says, don't blame me, I didn't write this shit. <laughs> oh, my God. 
why? (laughs) So I had four days of wandering around you and then I finally managed to get a kind of standby flight to Los Angeles. So like one place it was snow, the other place it was sun and everywhere I went, it was all the movies that, you know, and and Tim did that thing about he drove me around LA and went, you know, that's where that happened and that's where that happened and that's where that happened. And so, and I have found the last four years very difficult. Um, I'm sure other people have found it more difficult, but Mm. I have found it difficult because I, I... I have not felt comfortable about my relationship with America because, and I make no apology for this, I am very opposed to, to Trump and I, uh, I don't know what's going to happen in this election that's happening right now. Um, you know, I don't know how much to believe of polls, whatever. I, I, I suspect that it's going to be messy. But it, one of the reasons that it's bothered me so much is because I do feel deeply affectionate towards America and I really, really miss that. Um, do you do you feel positive about the future? Bearing in mind that by the time this podcast goes out, Greg, it'll be Tuesday, but I don't think we're going to get any results from the election probably for 24, 48 hours because of the way the poll... What, 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 as a hostage to fortune, what do you think is going to happen? Well, uh, I like to say uh, I'm an anxiety kind of ridden person, and uh, no shit. <laughs> yeah, I can be anxious. Uh, and I talk a lot about politics in my act and on my podcast. Uh, and Jennifer, uh, we, we talk about it constantly. She's massively informed and reads all the foreign papers, all the American papers, and um, really is great at collecting information. And because she's a little more uh, on level, level headed than I am. She's not prone to like fly off into that stratosphere. So I try to think about things like what would she do <laughs> as opposed to, oh my God, I'm having a panic attack. I got to go smoke <laughs> weed. Um, <laughs> so I like to look at indicators of people that I, one, trust who are sane and are not prone to hyperbole. Anyone who goes on Twitter and writes, holy shit in capital letters, and then there's an article they're having a panic over some small social media item or some court ruling or some violent act of racism to call America, uh, to say that it's different than it was is to misunderstand what America is. What's different is we've never had a leader that was, uh, so openly and vilely racist and, and horrible and diminishing and had no understanding or love of art, science, literature, or or uh, the act of being human. Uh, I disliked W intensely, uh, and Reagan, and Nixon, and I, I thought they're all terrible presidents who led us to this with their policies of racism and division. They were, however, um, having musicians at the White House, still still discussing the world with scientists and and doctors and the 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 fabric of the society, uh, the idea that there's law and all those things was understood, if not observed. As far as racism and it being worse now, the country was built by slaves who were brought over from another country, kidnapped and enslaved. Uh, They weren't slaves themselves, they were enslaved by us. So to to say the country was different and that's not who we are, it's exactly who we are. We built the police force so that it would be a racist strike unit. We built the prison system to have institutionalized slavery. The 13th Amendment that freed the slaves has a small, small sentence in it that says all the slaves are free, except if they're in prison, then they're not free anymore. So that was the way they could get that done. 
the, the Supreme Court, uh, the Senate, the Electoral College. It's baked in, built in. White racists built and made the government the way it is. So it is who we are. Is it the way we're going to be? No. And this is why I'm getting my long-winded point here. Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House, and she might be one of the best politicians America's ever produced. She weathered her way through being Speaker during the Bush or W's administration, lost it, won it back again in the middle of this mess, impeached him, got the Congress together to impeach him. And I'm sure you watched it because you're a, a devoted follower of American politics. Um, the Democratic argument at the impeachment was beautifully presented by a series of highly credible military figures, police figures, and lawyers. You know, some of the people had been law enforcement officials. Some of them had been lawyers and, and congresspeople. There was no wild raving. There was no anything but a line by line uh, textual going through of the, misdo uh, the misdeeds and the corruption. And then their argument to it was, I don't you know, you saw the other side. They just screamed. Uh, 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 people uh, played classroom puzzles, looked the other way, were on their phones. They acted like children. So when Nancy Pelosi says something's going to happen, I believe her because she doesn't deal in theories and QAnon nonsense and craziness. She deals in the nuts and bolts assembly of, of political uh, uh, coalitions, pushing people forward. She was largely responsible for the giant jump in women jumping into Congress in 2018 and then supporting them by putting them all on really great key positions within Congress on oh, panels and uh, um you know, everything in Congress is what, what, what panel do you sit on? Are you on the Finance Committee? Are you on the Judicial Committee? She's brilliant at recognizing talent and putting it where it needs to go. Uh, Ayanna Presley, who's had many bills passed as a lawmaker from Massachusetts. Katie Porter is a, a, a chases corporations down. She's a lawmaker from Orange County. Nancy put them all on the committees that they serve on, right? When there's an insurrection like the Gang of Four, she rides it out with great humor and grace. He hasn't spoken to her, 45 hasn't spoken to her since last year. She's the Speaker of the House. You're supposed to talk to the Speaker of the House. That's how it works. You're supposed to have a government with the other team. And ever since that picture, you remember she's standing up like this, pointing at him, and he's going like this, and the general next to him is hiding. And that line she said to him there was, with you, all roads lead to Russia. And he's never spoken to her since then. So all this dealing with the stimulus package has been through Mnuchin, who, as you know, is a crappy movie producer. <laughs> he made Suicide Squad. That's his big accomplishment. But he'll talk to her, but 45 won't because he hates women and he's insecure. She said the other day, the election's going to be decided on Tuesday. And she would know because there's teams of lawyers all around the country who've been swatting down suppression cases. You saw today in Texas, they were going to chuck out 100,000 votes. That got swatted down. Mark Elias is the name of the lawyer who's head of Biden's legal team. Nancy, Nancy Pelosi knows everything that's going on in this election. She knows who's cheating. She knows all the players. She knows who's not cheating. And she knows the internal polling numbers that you and I don't get to see. We get to see the crappy ones where it's like, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the Guardian poll suggests that, you know, hysterical liberals are going to have a, and people are going to run up down the street on motorcycles and shoot at you. Um, <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Greg, that we're speaking on Sunday and today the Daily Express led with a uh, landslide for Trump. Right. See, that's just <laughs> hilarious. That's that's pure. That's like Baghdad Bob. You know what I mean? It's, it's that level of, of propaganda. 
it, all the early voting that's gone on in Texas, Ohio, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, California, California's on fire with voting. Almost everyone's voted. Like we're not, no one's waiting for election day as opposed to other elections where election day is the day. And I always would go out. Uh, uh, this one has been gradually pushed forward. Election day is the last day of the election instead of the first day. So try to look at it that way. Early polling, I mean, early voting, it, it always falls down in the Democrats' favor. More democracy means less Republicans. They're, they wouldn't have fought so furiously and so frantically to disenfranchise people the way they have the last 10 years in Texas, North Carolina, uh, 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 Alabama, uh, Georgia, installing crappy you know, uh, secretaries of state and county clerks to make sure there's less polling places. The only reason to do that is because you know you're in the minority voting wise. So to me, all of those numbers suggest that it's going to be a decisive victory. Will it be clean and easy? Will he go gently into the good night? I wouldn't count on that. He's an abusive child who's been installed by evil forces to destroy us. The chaos that he creates, the anxiety that he induces every day by saying crazy shit over and over and lying, lying. He said doctors get more money if they say that the patient died of COVID. There's nothing more awful anyone could say. There's literally nothing more awful. Any, the most evil person in your life had never said anything that evil. So that's to make you and me feel bad. Because then we go, oh God, he's so bad. And why do all these people still cheer for him? And why, when will the world come back together? And, da, 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 da. and that's what he's trying to do. The Russians call it the fire hose of disinformation. Just flood the zone with lies. And so normal, sentient, rational, nice people like us who are part of the liberal media elite where all we care about is killing babies and uh, uh, you know smoking marijuana out of uh, endangered species skulls, we get upset over it. And then there's other people who don't follow things as much because they're simply trying to get through the goddamn day and put some food on the table. And so they pay some attention to it, but really they've got to work hard and or in the, you know what I mean? They don't have the leisure time to fucking agitate over it the way we do. And so I really think this has been so bad over the last four years that white people woke up to how bad it is. White privileged people have woke up to that there's injustice, that there's economic uh, systemic differences that are destroying us. And the hatred and the pain that he puts forward only really turns on about 30% of the population or whatever, like Nazi Germany. Did the Nazis ever have a majority? No, they stole it. They, instead of one Reichstag fire, we have a Reichstag fire every day. Instead of one Watergate, we have Watergate every, every other day. And that's how he's flooded the zone, right? Any other president who'd been impeached and had eight people from his administration thrown into jail <laughs> would, would not be running around saying what a great job he's doing. So I try to look at the rational part, and I believe that, that you may be right. It may take another day. It may be Wednesday or Thursday, but we'll get the results a lot sooner than everyone thinks. As far as his, what he's going to do, my guess is they'll sue and they'll counter sue and they'll try to uh, do as much agitating as they can. He'll probably come out on election night and say it's all crooked. You know, he'll probably lie his way yeah, through the next few days. There is a, um, a theory which has been uh, uh, spoken about in the fairly reputable press that because the, the Democratic vote, the Democrat votes um, are, are you know, early and postal, that there will be a Republican win at the ballot box on the day 
which will enable it. Greg, I don't know, and you're pulling, for those who are listening, you're pulling your face. Here's the thing. I, I, am, I am now at the point of, I genuinely don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I love listening to you, and uh, I think you've, I mean, you, you know, if this is your country, not mine, I'm looking at this, I think like, like a lot of the world, and this is probably a very good point to end on. Um, as I said, I mean, I'm clearly partisan. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I found my relationship with America under Trump very hard. Mm. And I find the idea of another four years, I, I think, OK, if there is another four years, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that I, uh, you know, getting on a plane and going to America because I just I but but I also accept that it is possible. Um, I have been wrong about so many things, and I think what 2016 taught a lot of us is that, you know, don't take anything for granted. However, it's lovely to hear you speak so intelligently and amusingly and, and confidently. And so I want to make two things. Firstly, I want to book in a, another conversation with you in a week's time. Okay. When this is behind us, just because I don't, I genuinely don't know how it's going to play out, and uh, so it'd be lovely to catch up with you in a week's time, uh, either to you know whatever or commiserate whatever. But the last thing I would say is, from across the Atlantic, from outside of America, what's happening at the moment looks, you know, crazy. Mm. From inside America, it sounds like. It looks actually less crazy. It sounds like you do have a handle on it. Am I right in thinking that it looks less mad from where you are? No, it's pretty mad. I think people are really, really genuinely... The word you keep hearing uh, from the chattering class, which I'm part of, is exhaustion. <laughs> Everyone's exhausted, so. right? <laughs> We're exhausted because it's trying to keep 17 balls in the air. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to work again. You know, my job is traveling the world and telling jokes. That's over for the foreseeable future. Uh, and then there's the whole, what's he going to do? Is he going to have armed gangs of white people drive up and down in buses like, you know, like we're a third world country? Uh, you know, uh, he, he foments violence and then he won't ever back down on it. So it, it's, it's mad over here, but I think we're all tired. And I think those of us who like to travel to other countries, and of course, I feel the same way about England that you do about America. I was over there. I was accepted. I lived there. Jennifer and I lived there. I toured there. I come, I've come back every year to play two or three times a year. I've only missed a couple years ever. Uh, and, and Scotland, Ireland, gee whiz. Last year we did a Nightmare Before Christmas in Dublin, Glasgow, and London at Christmas time. I mean the memories I have and how much I love the country. And I feel much the same as you do about America. I see what happened after Brexit. We did a show the night before Brexit and we were sure it was going to lose. And we flew the next day. And by the time we landed, there it was. And then, so I've been there for so many, I was there when Thatcher stood down. I was there when John uh, Smith died. I, we lived in Hammersmith. You're like Zelig. There's going to be history right? reels of every major event. Right? There's great. I remember walking up to the uh, the news agent, and Major was going to have to fight uh, John Smith for the election. And that's the sign said, you know, the you know how they they write uh, on the news agent the, the headline and magic marker. John Smith dies, and we went up to the news agent to buy our papers, and he went, "Of all the luck, right?" And I feel like Johnson and all them Gove. Banks, 
Farage, all the Brexiters who are just clearly um, greedy, money-grubbing spies, um, I feel bad. Uh, I want to go to England and, you know, the comedy store players are best mates of mine. And they had all these gigs booked at the Garrett and now the lockdown. So their lives are like, this is really long-winded. Um, so I know how you feel. I, I feel like it's a little mad. Like the country that I used to go to because it was so fun to go from London to Spain or Italy or uh, 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 Germany or, you know what I mean? That's gone. Like the, the, the idea of community with Europe, you know, the, why did that have to be destroyed? It's such a counterintuitive the point of Europe was to keep the peace in the world, like the Pax Europa, right? Since World War II, with only small, not small outbreaks, but like the war in the Balkans in the 90s was a terrible, terrible thing for Europe. Uh, the Russians invading Ukraine. Those are important things. Uh, and I feel like that's been put on its head a little. Um, I, I feel confident uh, about that he's going to lose, that, and I'll just leave it there. Uh, do, am I sure of it? No, no one's sure of anything. Why do I feel that way? One reason, Hillary was ahead by less at this point, and he squeaked out a victory by cheating in four or five key areas. He hasn't improved upon that, and a quarter of a million people dying and everyone not having a job hasn't made him more popular. So that's why I see empirically he hasn't added to his base, his vaunted base that loves him so much. No one's joined up in the last six weeks. Let me put it that way. <laughs> the people that are there are there. Uh, so that's how I feel. Long Greg, listen, answer. it's it's been lovely. No, not long boring at all. It's been lovely talking to you. Um, I confess, as I said, that, uh, you know, I'm I'm very trepidatious about. Uh, yeah. But because the, because the older I get, the more uncertain I get. But the one thing I am certain of is this: I love talking to you. I love how much you love movies. I love the, the, the I love how much you retain. I love the fact that that you're sitting there doing a radio interview with the most unbelievable jacket on. <laughs> and uh, so, look, let's catch up in let's catch up okay. in a week's time. And uh, and and wherever we are is wherever we are. Okay. All right. Thanks, brother. And thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it, mate. Uh, lots of love to you, Greg. Yeah, lots of love to you, baby. We'll see you soon. Thank you. And good luck. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.